What is a third rail? In the real world, a third rail makes trains move. It's all about forward motion. In politics, a third rail stops everything. The political third rail is a catch-all term for issues a lot of people want to talk about, everyone has opinions on, but are too divisive for your run-of-the-mill, cautious politician type to go near. A good example is gun control. For the most part, Democratic politicians have, until very recently, steered well clear of taking on the National Rifle Association and its political allies. Democrats almost always lose those fights, and in some cases, they lose them really badly. I've been told to stop shouting about guns. Which brings us to Hillary Clinton. Actually, I haven't been shouting, but sometimes when a woman talks, some people think it's shouting. I will keep speaking out, and I will keep taking on the NRA. A stance that not long ago was seen as election year poison for a Democrat. But on a number of issues, Clinton is running much farther to the left, much farther into what was once seen as politically dangerous territory than anyone expected. This has gone on too long, and it's time the entire country stood up against the NRA. So today I'm calling for universal, automatic voter registration. Every citizen in every state in the union. I believe we need to protect access to safe and legal abortion, not just in principle, but in practice. This is No One Knows Anything, the politics podcast from BuzzFeed News. I'm your host, Evan McMorris-Santoro. And today, we're going to talk about the surprising moments when Hillary Clinton has grabbed onto the political third rail and held on, delighting progressive activists and confounding the predictions that her campaign for president would be 100% boring centrism. We're going to hear the story of one of those moments Clinton defied the predictions and went to the left, and what it was like to be in the room when that happened. And we're going to talk to a voter who found the ultimate third rail in politics and is holding on to it for dear life. He's a Latino voter who's voting for Trump. We're going to ask him what that's like. Joining me in the studio today is Adrian Caracillo, BuzzFeed News' Latino politics expert. Adrian, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Evan. So let's talk about one of these moments where Clinton really surprised activists and surprised political observers by being uh, much farther to the left on an issue than people expected that she would be going into the election. Yeah, it was May 5th, 2015, three weeks into the Clinton campaign at a high school in Nevada. Uh, And basically it was a round table uh, with Dreamer activists, immigration activists, uh, to talk about immigration. And it is uh, Cinco de Mayo, so uh, this is an especially appropriate day for us to be having this conversation. She's surrounded by six dreamers, young people who came to this country um, as, when they were children. They with, are recipients with of, undocumented parents. Yes. So they are. So they're undocumented. And they've gotten work visas through Obama's program that's called DACA, which is deferred action so they can work and they're not going to be deported. But their parents are in the audience. And so they're the ones who are advocating for their family. And they're there talking to Hillary Clinton. And so they want to hear what Hillary Clinton has to say about immigration. And she's going there to do that then because it is 
uh, an important state, yep. an important day in the calendar. Nevada is the third state in the primary, right? So it's it's the first place that's going to have a lot of Hispanic people in the state, Hispanic voters. The Hispanic electorate looks different in, in different states. But in Nevada, it's a very immigrant-heavy electorate. You might uh, say you can't win a Democratic primary without significant support from Latinos in Nevada. You might say is that, that and you'd be right if you said that. If yeah, I said exactly, that. Exactly, exactly. So... What did activists who were going to be in that room with Hillary Clinton on May 5th in Rancho High School, what did they think of her at that time? They think Hillary Clinton is the person who waffled on driver's licenses in 2008 uh, for undocumented immigrants. Right. Um, Famously on the debate stage. Yeah, famous gaffe, mm-hmm. and, and people always bring that up. And they think Hillary Clinton is the person who said that when unaccompanied minors surged over the border um, in Central Amer- from Central America, that she said, you know what, they need to be shown as much love as possible, but then they need to go back. And so people were just really upset. They just felt that Hillary really isn't on, on their side on these issues, so they weren't expecting much. Okay, so here we go. We've got frustrated activists and they've got a Democratic frontrunner who they do not have super high expectations for. Mm-hmm. So that's how we get to that high school yep. gym. Is it a gym? Is it a library? It was a library. Okay, high school library. I keep saying gym, I mean library. It's funny because I've never really been in a high school gym. <laughs> I'm kind of like a doughy person. I don't really do a lot of gym. I'm much more of a library type. For some reason, I keep saying gym. I don't know why. Yeah. That is. Uh, I might be more apt to say like high school cafeteria even. Mm-hmm. In fact, anyway, so so she's in this library. So I will fight for comprehensive immigration reform. And a path to citizenship. So she starts off talking and she talks about um, immigration reform and she talks about a pathway to citizenship. And these are things that the activists already are expecting and they kind of roll their eyes at. And if Congress continues to refuse to act as president. But then she says that she'll go farther than Obama uh, on executive action. To go even further. There are more people, like many parents of dreamers and others with deep ties. And to will protect the parents of dreamers who are sitting around the table who deserve a chance to stay, and I will fight for them. So that's a big deal because these are her parents. Their parents are in the audience, um, and she says she will seek to phase out detention centers. So in theory, you've got the, th- the sort of like proverbial clipboard on the lap of the proverbial activists, and there's a proverbial list on it, and they're checking off executive actions going farther. They're checking off detentions. Yep. They're checking, and, they're, and so what is the... Based on your reporting, what's the feeling in the room as they're as they're checking box after box after box? Mm-hmm. It's really funny when I was watching the uh, the C-SPAN video of it again, and you hear like one activist go like "woo" and like clap, but it's you know it's kind of this thing where they have to keep it quiet and they have to let everybody else go. But um, a lot of people felt that it was further than they had expected that she would go. Then what happens? Yeah, I mean, Clinton finishes what she was there to say. But let me now turn to the people who are living this story. I want you to meet them. And she turns to the activists and introduces the first one so they can tell their story. Start with you, Astrid. If you will introduce yourself and talk about your own life and what brings you to this table today. Thank you, Secretary. Uh, My name is Astrid Silva. Hello. 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 Hey, Astrid. Yes. Hey, it's Evan with with BuzzFeed. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm here too. How are you doing, Astrid? I'm doing pretty good. So we called up Astrid because she was in the room for this moment that we're talking about today. And we called her at her parents' house yes. on Skype, mm-hmm. and she had some uh, she had some fun little friends, and she, she had a friend her, in the background. Her mom's birds were there. One in particular. <laughs> Those are my mom's birds. I woke them up early with the computer. <laughs> <laughs> what a, what kind They're, of birds are they? I have no idea. They're loud ones. <laughs> um, <laughs> Do they have names? I I'm, I'm not even going to tell you guys. My mom <laughs> named her bird Trump. No, no. Yeah, and I'm like, Mom. That's amazing. So, Astrid, tell me a bit about the first time 
you realized uh, the difficulties or, 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 or what's, what's different for a person who grows up undocumented and what those what that meant to you sort of in a practical sense of your life? Because I think some people, everyone understands that it is hard, but can you explain a bit about what specifically makes it hard and when was the first time you were, you became aware of, of it? You know, it's interesting because when I was little, I, you know, I would watch the news, the Spanish news, and, and back then it wasn't as extensive as it is now. And I would see stories about people crossing the border, um, people crossing the river. And I remember, um, I was four years old, but I remember when we had done that. But at the same time, I think that there was that sense of, but I speak English and I went to school here and only people that are older can be undocumented. Um, and so I think now looking back, it was little things that, you know, um, my parents were afraid for me to join Girl Scouts because you had to fill out paperwork. Um, I couldn't go to space camp in fourth grade because, again, you had to fill out all this paperwork, you know, liability forms and things like that. And my parents were deathly afraid of anything that had to do with filling out any paperwork that might ask for Social Security or more information. But I had grown up with my brother who, um, you know, he's five years younger than me, but he had a Social Security number. So I didn't see, you know, what was the difference between him and me. So, wow. Tell me a bit about that day, what it was like to be in the room that day, because it seems like you were very satisfied with this moment because you became a Hillary Clinton surrogate, right? You're out there now trying to convince people to vote for Hillary Clinton. Can you, can, can you just kind of walk me through that as a person who is not super well versed on the intricacies of this debate? Tell me why it was such a big day. Oh, man, it was a huge day, I think. I think that until I stepped in, I didn't realize, you know, this is a presidential candidate that's um, gonna, you know, she she wants to talk to us about immigration reform at a sit down. You know, it's not just like a run by meeting where you, you kind of scream a little and you go, hey, like I want immigration reform. And then they come back and they're like, oh, I'm going to work on it. And so we went in there with questions that were, you know, that were difficult. Um, you know, we talked about the transgender community. We talked about the three to 10 year bar, which most of our families um, are affected by. And that's something that was not being talked about. You know, here we are a few months later and Secretary Clinton um, has stated that she would work to get rid of it. I even look back at the video and I'm like, my face is just kind of going, what is going on here? Because <laughs> she was answering the questions that I thought she'd be really stumped by. <laughs> Can you explain the three to 10 year bar? Yeah, so the three to 10 year bar is um, when uh, undocumented people come to the country and if they have children, when those children turn 21, they can petition for them to remain in the country. However, um, because they are um, here undocumented, if they enter the country without inspection, they are given a three to 10 year bar. Um, and so this affects a lot of our community members because you know they've had their children here and once they turn 21, they go and they go, you know, they don't have the money for a lawyer, so they go to a notario or they go to, you know, a family friend who fills the paperwork out for them. And then they're really excited. They get this letter that says, oh, all you have to go is to Ciudad Juarez um, and you can come back and you're allowed to stay in the United States. However, they're not always told that when they leave, they are you know, they're hit with a ten, three to 10 year bar. And so we have, you know, thousands of parents that didn't understand it and are now stuck in Mexico. So Astrid, talk to me about the skepticism at the time, because now you're a Clinton surrogate. But at the time, you very much were keeping your options open. Um, 
you know, I'm interested in the skepticism because I know that you went from the spring to the summer and you kind of went to different candidates events. You, you checked out O'Malley. You checked out Sanders. And I checked out Rubio and Trump, all of them. <laughs> and um, Jeb as well. Yeah, I remember you told me. Jeb, too. Yeah, I forgot about Jeb. Poor Jeb. Um, <laughs> a lot of people have uh, forgotten about Jeb. You know, there was a lot of skepticism, um, but I think it was more of caution. Um, I think that she could have gone in there and just kind of said, hey, kids, um, I support the Dream Act and I support Dreamers and I support your parents. Um, but I think that her having actual solid answers and, um, you know, it impressed me. It, it, it really gave me an idea that, you know, she's been working on it um, to at the very least understand it. And I think that sometimes people refer to that as like, oh, well, this candidate is pandering. But I think that it actually speaks to our work. Um, it is, speaks to our work that Senator Sanders has made immigration a huge part of his platform. It speaks to our work that, you know, Martin O'Malley was talking about Puerto Rico. Um, it speaks to the work of the community. And I don't think that that's pandering. I think that that's pointing out that what we're doing as an entire movement is actually working. Yeah, I guess when you say uh, our work is working, and I think you make a, a strong case for how um, activists have been able to guide uh, candidates to their direction, especially in, in the Latino community, the way democratic politics works now. Is this, this you know, uh, an idea where you're ever going to be satisfied? Is there ever going to be a moment where you're going to say, OK, I'm packing up, I'm done being a dreamer activist? You know, we've done it. We've solved it. Uh, is that something that ever happens or is this always sort of a push for more and more? I mean, every every day that I come home, my dad still has an order of deportation. I, I can't I can't give up on it. Um, and so I don't think that this is something that just one day is going to be like, oh, wow, you know, we have a three to 10 year bar ban. Um, all is good. Let's go drink a margarita. <laughs> I think that all of us as leaders, we we have our time to, to do what we can. And then it's on to the next generation because they're the ones that are going to be pushing harder and harder, um, just like we fought um, after the people that came before us. You know, I think a lot of us remember the struggle like I remember having to ride the bus and having to walk everywhere but now I have a license and you know you get comfortable after two to three years without having to ride the bus anymore those things are, are easy to forget and I think that we need to make sure that as a community we don't forget those struggles that we had because other people are going to face them too okay Adrian so Astrid laid out the case pretty well for how Clinton has moved to where activists like her really want her to be on this stuff, right? So why doesn't Clinton just do this on every issue? I mean, am I wrong that there are activists out there who uh, don't think that Clinton has moved in their direction? You're not wrong. I mean, there's activists out there who are immigration activists who are still upset with her. Some of them who are parts of the Sanders campaign. And we're not talking about just immigration. I'm, I'm thinking about Wall Street yep. reform activists who think that Clinton is too close to Wall Street and hasn't gone their direction enough. A huge part of Sanders' campaign. I'm thinking of uh, people who want universal health care and it's felt like Clinton has backed away from that sort of democratic progressive promise. Uh, obviously, environmental uh, activists talk about, uh, for example, like on fracking, they feel like Hillary Clinton has not gone anywhere near where they want in terms of yep. banning fracking or backing away from fracking. Um, what do the issues where we see Clinton move to the left, where she does these things? And we've talked mm -hmm. earlier, we've talked about abortion. Mm -hmm. um, we've talked about uh, there is some Black Lives Matter stuff that she's done that's been surprising to those activists in terms of how she's embraced their movement. Mm -hmm. Um we're talking about immigration today and other Latino uh, electorate act uh, activist issues. What do those 
issues that she's chosen to move that direction on mm-hmm. or that we've seen her move that direction on. What do they say about where democratic politics is now mm-hmm. and what she is trying to do strategically? Basically, I think that on, on those issues, they made a calculation that was basically we are going to be protested and we are we are going to be criticized if we don't at least adopt these um, these policies a little bit more to the left. Democrats and activists have had a complicated relationship in the Obama years. President Obama embraced the activist left during presidential cycles, counting on them to boost Democratic base turnout for him. But in midterm elections, Democratic candidates have tended to keep activists at a distance, believing third rail issues to be too polarizing for a midterm electorate, which is generally whiter and older than in presidential years. But Democrats got crushed in 2010 and 2014. For 2016, the Clinton campaign studied the two visions of Democratic politics closely. Very closely. According to the New York Times, there was polling and focus group testing to determine if going left was a dangerous bet. In the end, Clinton settled on the Obama model. That's one reason she's more liberal on some issues than people expected her to be. So activists are pushing candidates on both sides towards the third rails, but activists don't always speak for all the people they purport to advocate for, and not every voter is an activist. Because voters defy stereotypes, politicians remain wary of third rails. There's no better example of that than this voter, Jesse Lopez, who's a Latino guy, a veteran, and just a real passionate dude voting for Donald Trump. Good, man. How are you? Oh, pretty good. You sound really busy. I'm in the car. Oh, yeah, yeah. It sounds like, it sounds like you got some people in there with you. That's my grandson. <laughs> How old is he? Watch out, because he'll, he'll say Trump number one. <laughs> <laughs> He's three years old. So I, I want to just start with a part of your story that I think that really jumped out at me, which is tell me about the time that you marched with Cesar Chavez and what that was like. Who's that guy? Is he got, we got like long hair back then. You're wearing like bell bottoms. I mean, like, what was it like to be a person? <laughs> you said you were a time? radical Latino activist back then, right? Oh, actually, yes, I was a radical Latino. It was uh, as a result of having read uh, some of uh, Cesar Chavez's uh, writings. Uh, also, the, the story of Pancho Villa <laughs> and the story of the Alamo. And, and, and it was like, it sounds like a lot of things that uh, we should have. We, being American Latinos, have been taken away from us from white Anglo-Saxon Americans. So, because it seems like today you're still kind of a radical Latino, but radical in a very different way, which is that uh, most of the Latinos who are marching today are marching against Donald Trump. Uh, You're marching for him. Do you see a connection between your time uh, as a Cesar Chavez radical Latino reading about the Alamo and and then today, what's what's that connection? Oh, there is no connection. I was marching for the legal American Latinos. And Jesse, you got into you, you went from the military, and then you did some border law enforcement, right? I worked with a military police unit. Our main objective was to extricate American military personnel from Mexican jails. And so I became familiar with the work of the Border Patrol and what they had to deal with on a daily basis. Getting shot at from across the border, 
I do. So, and the same for respecting law enforcement that are out there every day sacrificing their lives for each and every one of us. So you sound like a guy who's not going to have his mind changed. You're pretty much set for Trump, and that's that's how it's going to end, right? There's not one single Trump supporter that would have his mind changed unless God opened the sky and came on down. And what we believe is that he has, and he's the one that sent Donald Trump to us. Okay, well, I guess you can't uh, you can't say that there aren't isn't a lot of passion on the Republican side of this election. It's a reminder that, for example, Trump loves to talk about that entrance poll that showed that he won Nevada Latinos. So that's a small caucus percent of these like Latino Republicans. I think it's a reminder that these people are out there. Of course, you know, there's millions of Latinos. Of course, there's going to be um, some some minority that are into Trump. Polls have shown that that it's not a large amount of people. But and what I found interesting when I spoke with some Latino Trump supporters was basically there's some things that unite them. It's a lot of men. Uh, there was there was people with military experience, and and they talk about just like any Trump supporter. They like that he they feel he shoots from the hip and he says what he believes. Yeah. So I mean, it's important as we have all these conversations all the time. It's you know it's something that's hard in politics because we talk about people as parts of groups that mm-hmm. groups do things. Yep. So we say you know I mean I'm a uh, aforementioned, I'm, I mean, I'm a doughy, bearded, straight white man, so therefore I'm supposed to vote, I guess, from the line of the latest Star Wars movie or whatever I'm supposed to do. But even when we hear about the quote-unquote Latino electorate, mm-hmm. Jesse Lopez is in Latino electorate. Uh, yeah, the Latino electorate is is normally presented as one united thing, which it is not. It's not, um, it's not all one group. Right, which is, it shows a different role for activists, too, because sometimes they don't even have to... It's not just about convincing politicians. It's also about convincing... Voters to go with them on their issues. All right. So here's what we've heard. We have heard about moments when Hillary Clinton has surprised activists and surprised observers by jumping much farther into the political fray than people thought that she would in areas that were much more dangerous than people thought. We've heard from a just a quiet, laid back Trump voter uh, just subtle, like a real quiet, subtle guy. And we've heard from one of the activists who uh, is out there uh, trying to shape this election and has actually found herself sort of wooed by Hillary Clinton and, and direction that she's gone in in this race. So I wonder if you can talk just a bit about, Adrian, you cover the activist community so much uh, in your job. I wonder if you could talk a bit about what role do activists and political pressure groups play in this election? I mean, are they responsible for where Hillary is now? I mean, how much influence do activists actually have? So the first role they played was, yes, in shaping where she went on the immigration stuff early on in the election. Uh, The next role that they played was a a few high-profile activists joined Bernie Sanders' campaign. Now this becomes a huge part of Bernie's uh, primary uh, campaign, uh, him going on immigration and them trying to outflank Hillary to the left on immigration. The activists have played a huge role in sort of this new normal in democratic politics, which is not only tacking to the left on immigration, but also needing to make sure that your Latino infrastructure is up to snuff. It's not 
not what you used to be able to do in the 80s or early 90s, you know, have a taco at a restaurant, smile for a picture, and then head home. Um, you know, it used to be really dominated by Spanish language uh, advertisements and stuff like that, a few things like that. Now you have to have this not only reach out in Spanish but in English and to all those different communities across the country that we know. So the activists have shaped that in a big way. And, of course, there are great, great limits to how far activists uh, can go. I mean, I can think of activists from the environmental community that still mm-hmm. think that Hillary Clinton is way too far to the right on issues like fracking and, and some on, on other environmental issues. You know, act- of course, we've seen with the Bernie Sanders thing, these you know this huge amount of upsurge of people who are upset with politicians who, who take money from Wall Street or aren't perceived as being strong enough on Wall Street reform. They're not happy with Hillary Clinton either. So there are plenty of activist groups that are not being satisfied here. But we're suggesting that I guess we've seen some that have felt like she's listened to them. Mm-hmm. I guess the question then is, when it comes to is Hillary Clinton a liberal or not, do we know anything? Uh, I think here's what we do know. We know that uh, this this served her well in the primary. Uh, but what's going to happen is the general's going to be interesting. And let's say she were to become the president. She's talked about immigration the first 100 days. She wants to do gun control stuff reform. I mean, the, the first 100 days is going to be a shit show when she's talking about um, trying to do immigration and then maybe they don't have the House and maybe they have the Senate. I mean, you're, you're talking about much different when she has to face these issues when all the activists from all those different sides are saying, hey, you promised me something. So suffice to say they're uh, they're. Uh ready to get back into the fray with her if they need to. They were happy with her for one day. And after that, it's going to be a different story. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Well, the, that's uh, what we call job security coming from Adrian there, describing how he's going to still have stuff to cover no matter what happens. Exactly. Well, uh, Adrian, thank you for coming in. I think this is really interesting. And um, we'll talk to you soon as yeah. we go along. I mean, if you get into this general election. Thanks for having me, Evan. This was a lot of fun. Sure. Hi, Evan. It's Meg. It is Wednesday, May 11th, about 9 o'clock, and I just wanted to call and leave a quick message with the names of the people who worked on this episode. No One Knows Anything is produced by me, Meg Kramer, with editorial oversight from Catherine Miller and Eleanor Kagan, and correction help from Julia Furlon and Antonia Sarajito. Our music was composed by Ryan Adams and by Tam Lines. You can follow us on Twitter, we're at no one knows, or you can send an email to no one knows anything at buzzfeed.com. Our host is you, Evan McMorris Santoro, and we'll be back next week with more things we don't know. And Evan, if you could just email me this file when you get it, that'd be great. Thanks so much. Bye.